What a good-looking group. We're grateful that you're here as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. wasn't that long ago that Randy and I met with the elders and said, we think the next step is to guide the church through the study of the book of Acts. And, and they agreed because our thinking was, we want to see what happens when a church takes seriously the story of God's love for us. What does that do to people? What does that do to an entire community? And there's no better way to answer that question than by looking in the book of Acts. We've rounded uh, second base on this journey. We're halfway home. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 15. But before you open your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to lift up your Bibles. And we're going to say the prayer that we always say as we begin our study in the book of Acts. Here we go. Dear Lord, thank you for your wonderful acts. What you did then, would you do again? What you did through them, would you do through us? In Jesus' name, amen. Now open your Bibles to the 15th chapter. <clears throat> Acts chapter 15. The verses that are in Acts chapter 15 uh, will not appear on the screen because they're in your Bible, but the other verses that are parallel passages, those will appear on the screen. Well, we begin this week's message with a story. Who doesn't like a story? The story goes like this. King Christopher looked from the balcony of his castle across the land and he sighed. If I don't help my people, they will perish. Until recently, the kingdom of the king had been a happy one. In his land, the farmers plowed fertile soil and the gardeners grew ripe vegetables. Green hills rolled like ocean waves across the horizon. But that was before the plague destroyed the crops. Foreign ships brought foreign insects which ravaged the harvest and led to a famine. King Christopher knew he had to act. He straightened his shoulders and announced his decision. Empty my storehouses and fill my table. I will, fill, I will feed the entire kingdom in my own dining hall. If I may caution the king, do not be too generous. The caution came from justice, the king's aid. He was always cautioning the king forever and always urging the king not to be too kind, not to be too gracious. Make the people fear you, he would insist. One can go too far, he would say, and, and sometimes the king would listen, but not today. Justice, just tell the people to come to my castle. But, my Lord, no hesitations or cautions, Justice. You fetch the people, and I will feed them. Justice descended the castle trail, wearing a frown and uttering a grumble. The people are too common for such a gift. The king should make them work, make them appreciate his kindness. How dare they just walk up the hill and accept the food? They need to earn it. Then he stopped and made a decision. I will make them earn it. He resolved and justice assembled all the farmers and as the king had ordered he invited everyone to the castle for food at the king's table then as the people began to applaud justice began to add his own rules in a voice that was quite smug and important he said but in order to qualify for the free food you must first ascend the castle steps backwards to show your respect. 
Wear an empty grain sack on your head to show your poverty. Carry a plow on your shoulder to show that you are a farmer. The people stared at justice in disbelief. Was, were these rules the king's idea? Someone shouted. Do I not speak for the king? He replied. And he smiled. And he laughed. And he was pleased with himself. But the king was not pleased with justice. At first the king knew nothing of the rules, only that no one came to his dining hall. No one accepted his invitation. His dining hall was full, full of food but empty of guests. King Christopher waited and waited for someone to come until finally a farmer, a hungry farmer, stumbled into his dining room. And since the guest walked backwards, he hit the door. And since he wore a sack on his head, he crashed into the table. And since he carried a plow on his shoulders, it fell onto the platter of food. King Christopher hurried to the man's side and helped him up. Why is it that you have entered in this fashion and are all alone? Oh, did I break your rules, my king? Rules? What rules? The peasant farmer looked to justice, and justice stepped quickly toward the door. Justice stopped, the king said. Is this your doing? But sire, he said, I was only trying... I know what you were trying to do. The king's voice became suddenly calm and quiet, and he gave the farmer a chair at the royal table, and he placed a plate before him. Justice, you were trying to make my kingdom a kingdom of rules. But mine is a kingdom of love, not rules. Rules change the outside of a person, but love changes the inside. Eat, my friend, he invited the farmer. And you, Justice, the aged heart pounded with fear. What would his judge punishment be? The king said, now go and tell my people that their feast awaits them. You know, for every Christopher, there is a justice. There is a messenger who seeks to qualify the king's kindness, to calibrate the king's generosity, a party downer who tightens the spigot on the flow of the king's goodness. The Jerusalem church had its quorum of such people, and their work appears in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. Just a bit of background. The Jerusalem church, as you remember, was founded by Jewish people. After all, our Messiah was a Jewish Messiah. But as the church expanded out of Jerusalem and began reaching out into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, the harvest was comprised largely of, of Gentiles or, or non-Jews. The breakthrough occurred as we studied in Acts chapter 10 when, when Peter had a conversation with a Gentile, a non-Jew, by the name of Cornelius, and Cornelius became a Christian. And then the church spread into the, the city of Antioch, comprised largely of non-Jews. And the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out on the first missionary journey, and they targeted Gentiles. They reached out specifically to Gentiles. And their work was so effective and so successful that Luke, who plays the role of an historian and records the activities of Paul in the book of Acts, he said God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 
Now, this should be good news. And to many people it was, but to some it was not. Here comes the moral police in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, where did that come from? And then later in verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. These men described in Acts chapter 15 come from a religious group called the Pharisees. Now, they have, they have become Christians, but they're still acting like Pharisees because Pharisees were famous for their religious fervor and their law-keeping and their list-making. And they loved to be seen by other people being religious. In fact, they were known as the ones who would be willing to walk into a wall rather than look inappropriately at a woman. Uh, they were the ones who uh, would often speak out loud this question so that others could hear What further duty can I perform that I have not already done? They loved to be perceived as very religious. They made a franchise out of religious works and activities. They spent their lives achieving salvation the old-fashioned way. They earned it. They earned it by belonging to the right nation, being Jewish, and keeping the law, the law of of Moses. And when they got word that the Apostle Paul was teaching the gospel of grace, they were very upset. And when they looked into their church, their growing Christian church, and saw Gentiles, these unkosher, non Jewish people, living in the same forgiveness and the same hope that they lived, they thought this just is not right. So, like Justice did with the story, the promise of King Christopher, the Pharisees did with the story of Jesus. They just added a few rules. They'll tell them that they must be circumcised and they must keep the entirety of the law of Moses. Now that lands oddly on our Western ears. But to them it was important. It was important to add rules to grace. But if I'm a Gentile, I'm thinking, now that's not good news. I've been keeping rules all my life. And they were taking what was good news and turning it into bad news. Have you ever had anybody do that with you? Have you ever had anybody take good news and and turn it into bad news? I was a high school senior when someone did that with me. It was the spring of our senior year in high school, that time of life when everybody's thinking about the next step, the career or the job or or, or college. And I had this idea. I had an idea that I could play football for some college and they would pay my tuition. Now we have a word for that, don't we? No, it's not just stupid. It's the word scholarship. I had friends whose entire tuition was being paid for by a university and all they did was play football well I thought well maybe somebody will do that for me now that was a pipe dream because I was not a good football player my position on the football team was tailback 
not in the way you've heard. I played tailback because the coach was always saying, Lakato, get your tail back on the bench. <laughs> I guarded the bench more than I guarded the quarterback. But still, I had this idea that some college somewhere would pay my tuition if, and I would play football. So I had my hopes really high. Now, springtime is kind of a mating season between universities and recruits. And there's this ritual that happens on campuses all over the country. Maybe you've seen it. The college coach comes and he visits the high school campus. And the prospective player, the recruit, gets called out of class right in front of everybody. I mean, it's a wonderful day for that guy. The announcement comes over the loudspeaker, and the principal or someone says, uh, Mrs. Bowden, uh, please send uh, Billy Bob to the uh, athletic department uh, because the coach of university is here to see him. And Billy Bob stands up, and he flexes his pecs. And he gives it a little bicep action. And he puts on his letter jacket. And all the girls swoon and drool. And Billy Bob struts out of the classroom. And sure enough, he comes back a few minutes later with a letter in his hand. It's kind of like the glass slipper in Cinderella's story. He comes back with a letter of intent from a university and they're going to pay all his tuition we call this a free ride well so a lot of my friends were getting these invitations and i didn't get called out until one day one day an announcement came over the loudspeaker mrs bowden uh please send max locato to the athletic department because the coach of Austin College is here to see him. Well, I had never heard of Austin College. <laughs> but there were a lot of things I'd never heard of. So I didn't let that discourage me. I stood up. I flexed my pecs. <laughs> I popped my bicep. I put on my letter jacket. I strutted out of the room, and all the girls swooned and drooled. And I went down to the athletic department, and I walked in the coach's office, and sure enough, there was a coach from Austin College. It's in Sherman, Texas. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a great school. I walked in, and I sat down. The coach introduced himself, and after some chit-chat and small talk, he said, well, Max, we'd like you to come and play football at Austin College. I said, now that's good news. He said, it is good news. He said, there is one thing you need to know, however. Austin College does not give athletic scholarships. It took me a bit to process that. I said, you mean you want me to come and play and pay? He said, that's about right. I said, you're not going to pay my tuition. He said, no, 
but you can play. And I didn't say it, but I, I sure thought it. I thought, now that's not good news. <laughs> it had been good news. But then he said, you have to pay your own way. And I, I thought, now that's not good news. That's what the Pharisees were saying to the people. They were saying, you know what? God wants you to be on his team. He wants you to suit up. He wants to have you on his side. Uh, but you've got to pay. You've got to pay your own tuition. You've got to go through these initiations. You've got to go through circumcision. Keep the law of Moses. Basically, you have to become a Jew. You, you can't be Gentile. You have to become a Jew. And hopefully that will keep you. That's not good news. And the apostle Paul, an old Pharisee himself, he saw through this like a shredded sheet. And he got all over these guys. Most people think that the letter that he wrote to the Galatian church was in response to these Pharisees. In fact, when you read the letter that he wrote to the church in Galatia, you pick up on his frustration for example, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4, he talks about false brethren secretly brought in. When Paul realized that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, he made his position clear. He said, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So look what we have here. We have a standoff. We have the apostle of grace and the Pharisees of the law, and they do not agree. So what's the response? Well, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem call a meeting. Now we return to Acts 15 in verse 6. We call this the Jerusalem Council. It's a meeting. Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. Good for them. They weren't just going to let this go unaddressed. And this is a huge question. You might say it's a watershed moment in the church. Because here's the question that's under consideration. Is God's grace sufficient for salvation? Is God's grace enough to save us? Or do we have to add our own works? The Pharisees would say, well, we have to add our own works. They would say, we still trust in Jesus' grace. In fact, we trust in grace a lot. So we call them the grace-a-lots. They trusted in grace a lot. From their perspective, salvation was like a, like a rowboat. And Jesus has one oar, and you have the other. You do your part, and he does his part. And let's see if we can get this thing home. Makes sense. They trusted in grace a lot. But Paul and Peter, they believed that we should trust in Jesus' grace alone. Alone. And there's a big difference between a lot and alone. And so Peter was the first one to speak at this council, speaking firmly on the side of grace alone. He reminded the council of the conversion of Cornelius and the Gentiles. And then beginning in verse 9, if you'll read with me. He reminded them how God made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the necks of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. What's he saying? He's saying that the the same grace that saved the Gentiles saves the Jews, that saves the Jews, saves the Gentiles. By the way, these are Peter's final spoken words in Scripture. We're going to say goodbye to him now. We've been following him ever since the shores of Galilee when he began following Jesus. And we, we watched him as he asked questions and stumbled and walked on the water and denied Jesus the night before the crucifixion and then saw Jesus at the resurrection and then preached on the day of Pentecost. What a life he has led. And of course, his life continues, but his prominence in Scripture discontinues right here. It's time for Paul to have the main voice. And so the final spoken words of Peter in Scripture are these, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Good for you, Peter. Can't think of any better departing words than those. Peter stood firmly in the camp of grace alone. And so did James. James is the next one to speak. James is the brother of Jesus. Grew up in the same house as Jesus. Widely respected in the Jerusalem church as a leader in the church. Widely known as a man of prayer and piety. A legend works its way down to us today that James prayed so much that his knees were calloused like those of a camel. And he was called camel knees. He had a reputation for being pious. And certainly the Pharisees thought they would have an ally in James. But when James stood to speak, they realized he too was from the camp of grace alone, not grace a lot. Verse 14, we won't read all of his response, but he points out that God visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. He has a special place for Gentiles. And James quoted God's promise from the book of Amos, so that the rest of mankind, verse 17, may seek the Lord Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. What was their message? The message of James was that God is not going to confine himself to just a certain ethnic group. And you don't have to change ethnic groups. You don't have to go from being Gentile to being Jewish to be saved. We're going to land firmly in the camp of grace alone. Now, the elders and the apostles draft a letter that goes out to all the churches And it urges all of the Gentiles to observe Jewish customs, but not to be saved, but just out of a spirit of unity. Urges them not to eat certain food that's been sacrificed to idols because Jews don't do that. And also to not practice sexual immorality, and they were hopefully willing to do that as well. But all this discussion of observing the law and and, and circumcision, the, the, the apostles would have none of that. They took a firm stance on the side of grace, and they wanted to keep the river of grace pure. I would encourage us to do the same. I would encourage us to stand firmly in the camp of God's grace and to let His grace be kept pure. Listen, it's not easy. We are, by default, legalists, Pharisees. We like rules. We like lists. We like to know that what we have done is enough. And legalism is always saying, have you done enough? 
when I was in Miami, Florida, at the first church I served at. One of the sweetest members of our congregation led her next-door neighbor to Christ. Both of these ladies were in their 80s. They were elderly. And it was a special day when the lady showed up with her next-door neighbor and her friend had accepted Christ. And she asked me if I could baptize her neighbor. I said, absolutely. So we went up to the baptistry that afternoon. It's in the middle of the day, middle of the afternoon. The three of us did. Went into the baptistry. And as we were going into the water, the lady who was about to be baptized said, Now, I have a fear of water. And, and remember, she's in her 80s or at least late 70s. She's pretty feeble and frail. I said, okay, absolutely. I'll be careful. And so we went down into the water, and the neighbor stood on the steps right above us to watch the baptism. As I lowered her friend down into the water for baptism, this elderly lady, the one I was baptizing, reached her hand up and grabbed the edge of the baptistry for security. I guess she didn't think I was going to pull her back up. And so she grabbed a hold of the side, and that was fine. I lifted her back up, but consequently, her right arm never went under. The friend <laughs> watching on the steps, when I looked up at her, I expected to see that she would be happy, but she was not happy. And she said, Max, dip her again. <laughs> dip her again. Because she was concerned about that arm <laughs> that didn't go under. Now, maybe I'm wrong in not sharing her concern. Maybe in heaven right now, there's some one-armed lady walking around. <laughs> I, but I didn't share her concern. But I understood it, and I understand it to this day. I know where that question comes from. It comes from that dark pocket within each of us that is full of doubt. That wonders, have I done enough? Have I done it right? It comes from that part of us that says, I'll be saved by the ritual, by precision, by performance, by doing things right. I'll be saved if I do things right. Consequently, the outgrowth, the, the next question is, have I done things right? Or sometimes we say, have I done enough? Have I read my Bible enough? Have I gone to church enough? Have I fed the poor enough? Have I sung enough? Have I sacrificed enough? Have I been good enough? Can I answer that question for you? No. No, you haven't been, nor have I. Legalism says, have you done enough? The response of grace is, no, but Jesus has. But Jesus has. Jesus did enough. He led a perfect life. He led a sinless life. But then he died a sinner's death. And he died a sacrificial death that was adequate, sufficient, comprehensive. He accomplished what I could not. 
I cannot do enough, but Jesus can. And so I'm moving out of the camp of grace a lot, and I'm stepping over into the camp of grace alone. And I'm going to depend entirely upon what He does. And that's the stand that the church took in Acts chapter 15. And I tell you, that's the stand we take right here at Oak Hills. We believe that we are saved only through the grace of Jesus Christ. And when we receive His grace, He's the one who takes over and makes sure that we get home safely. Does that mean you do not work? It means that your works do not save you. It means that any service that we perform is not in order to be saved, but because we've been saved. And it also means that we do not live in the shadow of doubt. Legalism or Pharisaism or grace a lotism <laughs> leaves you in the shadow of doubt. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Have I accomplished enough? And most of the times we say, no, I haven't. Every so often someone is cocky and arrogant and says, yes, I have. But neither outcome is good. Neither answer is right. One leads to fear. One leads to arrogance. Neither one works. But legalism leaves you in the shadow of doubt. But listen, grace leaves you in the shadow of the cross. Gone are the works. Gone are the asceticisms. Gone are the busyness. Gone is the concern. Gone is the question that says, what if having done everything, I still might not have done enough? Grace says, God loves us too much for that. And listen, He loves you too much for that. He loves you too much to create some system that you cannot keep, some law that you cannot accomplish. He loves you too much for that. Would you move today from grace a lot into grace alone? The Apostle Paul says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Don't be strong in your works or in your accomplishments, but be strong in the grace. The same Jesus who said on the cross, it is finished. Salvation is finished. The work is finished. Listen, if it is finished, it is finished. So live like it is and enjoy life in the camp of grace alone.